0: Oh, well, join me in John chapter 18 this morning, John chapter 18. We are continuing to trace these final few hours of Jesus's earthly life. We are in verses 28 through 40, John chapter 18. And verses 28 through 40, we're moving from the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas. That's where we were last week. We saw Jesus stand strong in the face of of his religious enemies, he showed himself to be the innocent and righteous one, the savior we need, the only one who could fulfill Isaiah 53, 11, and justify, declare righteous based upon his own perfection, his own obedience, and justify the many, all who come to him in saving faith. That's where we were. Well, this morning we now enter into the palace of Pilate and Jesus has been convicted to death by the Jewish Sanhedrin at this moment. It's been three religious trials. They've issued their verdict. In between verses 27 and 28 in this chapter, you can read the details of that in the other gospels. But now as verse 28 opens, Jesus stands before this Roman ruler the only one who possesses the authority to sanction his crucifixion. Let's read the passage to set it in our minds, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill. The word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. For Pilate said to him, So you, you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber and you can stop there. Ever since the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he has seen this day and this Trial coming. In Mark 8, Jesus made it clear: the Son of Man must suffer many things. This is a divine necessity. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, exactly what took place, verses 12 to 27 last week. But then Jesus makes this know, and be killed. Well, what do we just read in verse 31? It's that the Jews did not possess the authority to execute anyone. Jesus says it's a divine necessity that he be killed. This execution Jesus has in mind must mean that he will one day stand trial before the leader of Rome who possesses that authority. In Mark 9, Jesus again predicted this trial. The son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. They will find him guilty, and they will sentence him to death. It's a prediction made even more clear in Mark 10. Behold, Jesus says to his apostles, we are going up to Jerusalem to stand before Pilate was Jesus' goal. That's why we're going. It's why the father sent me, why? Because the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death, but they cannot carry out that verdict. And thus they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will hand Christ over into Pilate's hands, his jurisdiction. And then they, the Roman soldiers will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, meaning they will crucify him. And so now after three years of predictions, this inevitable and prophesied trial is about to begin. And the way John describes Jesus' trial before Pilate is filled with irony. We will see many of these play out, but the main irony here is this, This is a trial between two kings, two rulers. You have the rightful king of Israel, the king of kings. He is the one here who looks nothing like a king. And then you have the Roman ruler, Pilate, representing Caesar, the king of the Gentiles, who seemingly holds all earthly power and authority. Look at Pilate's mocking question in verse 33. You see this irony play out. Verse 33, are you, it's emphatic here, sarcastic. Are you who stand before me? You're bound and bruised and exhausted. You're at the mercy of your enemies. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that who you claim to be? Now we know the answer to Pilate's question. This is how John's gospel began. It began with Nathanael's confession Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the promised King. Though Jesus might not look like a King, here in this passage, he stands before Pilate as a King. He is the promised King, but Pilate sees none of that kingly royalty. It's Psalm 2 playing out right in in front of our eyes. The kings of the earth, Pilate and Caesar, they take their stand. And by the way, they're still taking their stand against the Lord, the creator king and against his anointed, the promised king. Notice how this kingly irony continues. Look at verse 39. Pilate asks the people, do you wish that I release for you this man, the king of the Jews? Again, this is his mocking words. Move into chapter 19. When chapter 19 opens, we see the Roman soldiers playing a game of kingly dress up with Jesus. Look at verse two. Soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. A purple robe on him, and they began to come up and to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. In verse 14, 19:14, Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king, words of contempt, this is your king. Verse 15, he asks, Shall I crucify your king? It's a final taunt. In fact, this kingly irony is maintained throughout Jesus's entire crucifixion. Look at verse 19, here's the charge for which he dies. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. The irony is this, what Pilate said about Jesus, what Jesus is convicted of being the king was true true statement. And yet Pilate is blind to see any of this. He's arrogant, he's proud. And he sees none of Christ's royal majesty standing right before him. That's the irony. But again, we know the truth. We know that Jesus is indeed the king of kings he claimed to be. In fact, he is a king who will one day return in regal power and royal might. John knows this. John ends his gospel with the King of Kings being crucified. But that's not how John ends his final writings. He ends the book of Revelation with the King of Kings being victorious. John writes, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And notice this, and on his head are many, what? Diadems, crowns. His crown of thorns is replaced with regal, a regal headdress. And he, verse 15, he will rule. He is the king. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written here it is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the irony. He's the king, but Pilate does not see it. And before that final promise, victorious coronation can take place, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, he must die like no other king will die. He must be convicted by this ruler of Rome. He must be sent to his cross of shame in order to purchase entrance for his people into this coming kingdom. This is the necessary trial of the king, the true king. And it plays out in eight acts, eight Acts, we're going to look at the first three this morning. Begin with act number one. We see the innocence of the king. The innocence of the king. We focused here last week, but again, this is the emphasis. As Jesus stands before Pilate, begin in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. The praetorium was where Roman governors would reside when they were in Jerusalem. There's a palace residence. It's located either at Fort Antonia, the north side of the temple, or it refers here to Herod the Great's old palace on the western wall of the city. Either way, Pilate's there. He's staying there at this time during Passover to maintain order. This is a nationalistic feast. You have hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered. They're celebrating God's rescue of Israel over a Gentile nation. Many want God to do that again, for God to rescue them from Rome. So Pilate's there in case anything happens. Maintain order. We see the timing of this trial, verse 28. It was early, a little after sunrise, somewhere around 6 a.m. Jesus has been awake for over 24 hours now. And again, you see irony. John adds this note in verse 28. They themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter into the praetorium. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So you have the innocence of Jesus. You have the righteousness of Jesus here. It's over against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. This is how evil the Jewish court has become. How evil, they're filled with hypocrisy here. They want Jesus dead. That's their goal. It's been their goal for years. On this night, they broke dozens of judicial laws to ensure his guilt. And yet here, what do we read? They are unwilling. They are unwilling to break laws of ritualistic purity. That's irony. That's hypocrisy. They won't enter a Gentile building because they want to celebrate the Passover. They want to celebrate the feast that points to the very one they want dead. They're fine with murder. They're fine with murder. But they're unwilling to become ritualistically defiled. So again, all hypocrisy at its highest level. This is the innocence of Jesus. Jesus' words are true. This people honors me with their lips. They love the religious piety. They boast their outward conformity. Their heart is far from me. It's jealousy and evil contrasted with the perfection and innocence and righteousness of Jesus. Look at verse 29. Therefore, Pilate went out to them. So just imagine the scene here. The Jewish leaders stand on the steps of this palace. They're unwilling to enter it. Jesus stands next to them. He's exhausted. He's bound in ropes. Now Pilate walks out, the ruler, he walks out. He's been expecting them. In fact, he gave them Roman guards to arrest Jesus earlier this night. He knows they're coming so Pilate in verse 29 says what accusation do you bring against this man he formally opens a judicial proceeding what accusation do you bring against this man finally there's due process but amazingly it's from a pagan ruler here now at this point Luke records the religious leaders accusing Jesus of misleading the nation against Caesar They accuse him of forbidding the paying of taxes. Accuse him of inciting a revolution against Rome. Here's the problem. None of it is true and they have no evidence to offer, no witnesses to bring. So in verse 30, they change course. They forget the specific accusations and they said to Pilate, if this man were not an evildoer, We would not have delivered him to you. Take our word for it, Pilate. Rubber stamp our claims. Trust us. The last thing the religious leaders want is a trial. Again, they have no evidence, no witnesses. They want a quick execution. They want to get rid of this man who has caused them so much trouble. But there's a problem. And the problem is that Pilate and these priests have a checkered past. The Jewish leaders hate Pilate. They hate Pilate because he's a Gentile. Throughout his rule, he scorned Jewish traditions. Pilate's brought images of Caesar and shields of Rome into Jerusalem. It's his doing, blatant forms of idolatry He's done this to remind them of Gentile oppression. He's kind of needling the chief priests. In fact, Pilate has even taken money from the temple treasury to fund construction projects that he has. So these chief priests hate Pilate. Well, Pilate loathes the chief priests. They keep causing him problems with Rome. They keep reporting his actions back to his superiors. In fact, Pilate will be ousted from his post in about three years because of what the Jews accuse him of. So they hate one another. Pilate will not rubber stamp their accusation against Jesus. He sees right through these leaders envy and bluster. And this is a backhanded pronouncement of Jesus's innocence And so Pilate, though he sends the guards to help them, Pilate now says in front of them, verse 31 take him yourselves. If you will not bring a charge against him, if you will not bring any evidence, then I will not give you any trial. So judge him yourselves according to your law. Again, this is irony. The Jewish leaders are challenged to find the only one who fulfills God's law to perfection. They're challenged to judge him about that law and find him guilty of breaking that law. They can't do it. They know that. And so they plead with Pilate. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Do you think Pilate knew that? We are not permitted to put anyone to death. When Judea came under Roman rule, AD 6, they lost all authority to carry out capital punishment. Pilate knows that. Now the Jewish leaders could have flogged Jesus. They could have flogged Jesus. It's well within their rights. But they're angry with Jesus. They hate this man. They're so angry, they don't want Jesus just flogged. They want Jesus dead. Not just any death, they want Jesus to hang on a tree. Why? It's a symbol that he's cursed by God. That's their goal. Think of Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, he was hanged is accursed of God. That's what they want. They're jealous, and so they want Jesus discredited in front of the people. But they fear the people. Remember back to chapter 12, the popularity of Jesus. In chapter 12, Jesus comes in to the city, and a large crowd follows him, they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. He's popular amongst the people. So they fear the people and thus they want Rome to pronounce this verdict. And yet Pilate is unwilling to do this for them. He will not carry out their dirty work. Take him yourself. I will not rubber stamp the claim. So at this point, at this point, the trial should be over. Trial should be over before it begins. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. That means there's no hearing. There will be no verdict. But what do we find in verse 33? Drop down, verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium and summoned Jesus. So wait a second, the trial continues? I thought you just said, take this man yourself. The trial continues. It makes no sense. This makes no sense. There's no evidence, no witnesses, yet Pilate begins to question Jesus. He's doing what his enemies want him to do. So we need to ask what happened? What happened? Why all of a sudden the change of heart? Well, we're told in act number two, act number two, the sovereignty of the King, the sovereignty of the King. There's only one way that Jesus can die, only one. It must be on a cross, why? Two reasons, number one, this is what the Old Testament promised for the coming Messiah. It's what the Old Testament promised. We know those passages, Psalm 22, The savior must be forsaken of God, but he also must be poured out like water. This is a prophecy of the Messiah saying, all my bones are out of joints. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. This is the exhausted Christ now, now hanging on the cross. My strength is dried up like a pot My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. And then this prophecy, they pierced my hands and my feet. That's an amazing prediction. Crucifixion was not invented until the Persians develop it in 300 to 400 BC. And yet the Messiah here in the prophecy says they pierced my hands And my feet, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. That's the picture of a crucified victim. We'll see this next verse fulfilled later in John 19. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The Old Testament promises this. He must die on a cross. Isaiah 53 has said, the Messiah must be smitten of God and afflicted. He must be crucified. Why? That's a physical picture of the spiritual reality of being cursed by God. He must be crucified because Isaiah 53, 5, the Messiah must be pierced through for our transgressions. There's only one way for Jesus to die, only one. There's a second reason Jesus has to be crucified, though. It's the reason John gives in verse 32. The reason why the trial of Jesus doesn't end in verse 31 when it should have ended was, verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So Pilate brings Jesus into his palace because Christ's words need to come to pass. Pilate doesn't know any of this, but Christ's words need to come to pass. This is a sovereignty of the king. Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies of crucifixion. This is why he said throughout his ministry that he must be crucified, raised up. Think of John 3, This is one week into his ministry, John 3. One week into his ministry, and what does Jesus say? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness on a pole, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. It's the only way I can save the sinner from his sins. I must be lifted up on a tree. Those are Jesus's words. Think of John 8. Here's Jesus's promise. When you lift up, when you lift me above the earth, when you put me on that cross, then you will know that I am he. Implication is it will come too late. But the point is I know what you are planning. You're planning to bring me before Pilate so that I will be crucified. Think of John 12. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all kinds of men, from Jew to Gentile, I will draw them to myself in saving faith. Only death on a cross can do that. So there's no confusion, John adds. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus sees the cross coming. He knows it. He will be lifted up. He sees this trial. Can add the promise in Matthew 26. After two days, Jesus says, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. He won't just be flogged or humiliated. He'll be murdered. Again, why? Because crucifixion was the redemptive plan about the father Prophesied in the Old Testament and the Son, his words here in the Gospels. He must become a curse for us. He must be afflicted by the Holy One and crushed for our iniquities. He must be pierced through for our transgressions. This is the ultimate reason Pilate capitulates to the Jewish leaders. This is why Pilate decides to hold a trial. A trial despite there being no evidence or witnesses presented. Why? Because prophecy must be fulfilled. Because redemption must be accomplished. Again, this is the sovereignty of the king. And amazingly, even while standing bound in ropes, beaten, exhausted, Christ is still in control of everything that's happening here. One commentator wrote this, both the Jewish accusers and the Roman judge are actors in a drama scripted by a divine planner. Or to quote another commentator, behind the shameful facade of Jewish and Roman justice, another form of justice is unfolding Here lies the irony of the situation. It was precisely God's intention to lead his son to this point and to exactly this method of execution. It is not the Jews or the Roman governor who are in control of events, but Jesus, the sovereignty of the king. Christ is no victim here. His cross will come to pass. It's been promised, it's been prophesied. Leads into act number three. Act number three, where we see the veiled majesty of the king. The veiled majesty of the king. Look at verse 33. Therefore, Pilate unknowingly fulfilling God's redemptive purposes. He entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus. So the king of kings now stands before the ruler of Rome. Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. The kings of the earth are taking their stand. And Pilate said to him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? This is the Roman procedure called cognitio, an initial judicial inquiry for non-Roman citizens. It's an opening question. It's a mocking question. Those words are you, they're emphatic. Translate it this way. So you are the king of the Jews, are you? That's who you think you are? That's who you claim to be? These the words of scorn. Pilate's blinded to the glory of Christ. And Pilate at this point sees nothing more than a mere helpless man at his mercy. He does not see a revolutionary the religious leaders claimed him to be. Jesus wore no robe. He has no crown. He carries no weapons. He has no army And that's Pilate's conclusion embedded in that sarcastic question. His conclusion is this, Jesus, you are no king to be afraid of. Even more, you offer no threat to Rome. You think you're the king. There's no fear here for Pilate. This is why Pilate commands Jesus to be scourged in chapter 19, verse one. Let's rip open Jesus's back. Why? because Jesus is no one to be afraid of. What's he gonna do? That's why Pilate allows his soldiers to dress Jesus up as a comic king and assault him, verses two through three, chapter 19. Even hail him in feigned allegiance. Again, why? Because there's going to be no retaliation from Christ. What can Jesus do? Look at chapter 19, verse five. So why Pilate presents Jesus to the people like this, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And what does he say? Behold the man. Behold this miserable creature who claims to be king, who you say is king. Behold this humiliated, poor, pathetic, bloodied, beaten man. Here's your king. Pilate has no fear. He has no fear. Because according to Pilate, Jesus is no king and he offers no threats. And quite frankly, that's the conclusion that many today have made about Jesus, right? Jesus offers no threat to them. Jesus is no king. He has no authority over They are on safe ground in their sin. That's the thought. And they think like Pilate, they can stand in judgment of Christ. They can dismiss his words. They can mock his claims. They can reject his warnings. Why? Because they think all along that they will never be judged by Jesus. And so, this is where we need to pause in this trial for a moment. Because though Christ's majesty is veiled in these verses, that is true. A day is coming when his majesty will be unveiled, and Christ will show himself in all of his power and glory and righteous fury. That day is coming. And though Jesus might look like a lowly, non threatening, pitiful man standing in Pilate's Praetorium, that would be the wrong conclusion to make about this Jesus. Because this Jesus is the most majestic king. And he will one day wield ultimate authority and issue final judgment upon all of unbelieving mankind. That day is coming. And please mark this, this Jesus has issued the greatest threat that can be made. He is a threat. It's a threat to all who do not come to him in saving faith. It's a threat for all who refuse to let go of every work they do trying to earn God's favor. A threat to all who refuse to confess their sinfulness and turn in repentance from sin a threat to all who do not bow before him as Lord, as King, as Savior. And the threat is this. If that is you, if that is you, then you will one day stand before this Jesus, not like Pilate. But you will one day stand before Jesus and he will pronounce final judgment upon you. That's the threat that this king issues. This is the threat back in Psalm two. Kings of the earth take their stand. What's the threat? It's how the Psalm ends. Do homage to the son, to this king. Worship him. Bow before this son, this king. Why? That he not become what? Angry. That's a threat that ye not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. His judgment is coming. How blessed are all who take refuge, find their salvation in him. This is the same Jesus in John chapter five who said this, the father has given all judgment, final judgment eternal judgment. The father has given that judgment to the son and he gave him authority to execute judgment. And thus verse 28, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth not even in death. Can you escape Christ's judgment? Those who did the good deeds, those who came to the sun in faith and repentance, who did a homage to the sun, found refuge in the sun, they will come forth to a resurrection of life. They'll be blessed. But now the threat. Those who committed the evil deeds, those who refused to find their refuge in the sun, those who would not repent of their sin. Would not rest only on Christ. They will be raised to a resurrection of what? Of, of judgment. It's coming. This is the danger talked about in 2 Thessalonians 1. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, his veiled glory will become sight. And he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire. It's always a reference to judgment. Dealing out retribution, condemnation to those who do not know God, watch now, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who do not heed Jesus's warning. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So often we think of Jesus as meek and mild. These are the warnings of Christ's coming judgment. And this is actually how the story of Jesus ends. The story of Jesus does not end on a cross. It ends on a throne. It ends with a stark warning as the defendant in John 18, the defendant actually takes his judgment seat in Revelation 20. Just let the scene sink in. Same writer, John, says, I saw a great white throne. This is a pure throne. This is a holy judging throne. And him who sat upon it, that's the resurrected and glorified Christ. How different from John 18. On him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Christ veiled majesty is now glory so great that all of creation flees from him. And mark it, no man can hide from his presence. That's why John then says, I saw the dead. This is referring to every unbeliever. This is not for the believer. This is every unbeliever the great and the small, men and women from every class, no unbeliever escapes this judgment, none. And they are standing before the throne and they are awaiting his sentence of them. What will the judge base his verdict upon? Verse 12, the books were opened and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds for every Unbeliever, every sin will be uncovered. Every sin will be brought forward. Why? Because there's no escape. There's no forgiveness. There's been no sacrifice for that sin, those sins. And no sin will be forgotten by this holy judge. And then verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it's for the believers He was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the threat. That's the threat from this holy judge. And in all of those passages, what you see is that Jesus issues this threat to every unbeliever, every unbeliever who refuses to bow before him in saving faith. Understand this, the veiled majesty of Christ will not always be veiled. One day it will shine bright and it will expose every unbeliever's sin and he will issue his final verdict of guilty. And there'll be no answer. There'll be no recourse. And yet what does Jesus promise? John 5, he's been given authority to judge issues that threat, but now he issues this promise, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, he who hears my gospel and believes him who sent me, that person has eternal life. You come to me in saving faith, I give you eternal life. And then the promise, you will not come into judgment, You will not stand before that great white throne. Why? Because through faith in Christ, here's the promise, you pass out of death and you pass into life. Again, in the words of Psalm 2, when you do homage to the son, you are blessed when you take refuge in him. So the question I must ask is, have you come to Christ in saving faith? Have you bowed before Christ, confessing your sin? Have you turned from sin? Do you realize that you cannot do any work to appease this holy God? The only way to avoid Christ's coming throne of judgment is to bow before this King of kings and this Lord of lords. Father, we have ended with quite a warning. And no doubt, no doubt, there are some here in this room who have never come to you in saving faith. They may come to the church they have not come to Christ submitting their self to his authority, resting fully on his sacrifice, loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, I pray that your spirit would change those hearts. Allow them to see your glory in the face of Christ and give them the faith and repentance necessary find their refuge in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.